Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity tonight just to gather again and look at your word. We thank you for the book of Genesis. Lord, we thank you for all the stories that we've been uh, reading and the the characters we've been studying. And Lord, I just uh, thank you for the richness of what the Old Testament means to us. And I pray, Lord, that um, I would be clear tonight, Lord, that Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher. You'd guide us into all truth and that we would just have a fun time learning about uh, the story of Joseph. And as we get into Exodus, uh, learning about that as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I don't think I have written notes for Joseph, so I'm going to have to look at the screen here. Um, So I'm going to put this to the side here. Joseph is the longest narrative out of all of the patriarchs. And and really, Joseph isn't a patriarch because he's the son of um, Jacob. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through the story. And so we're going to just start in in, uh, Genesis chapter 37. And we're going to actually start in verse 5. Well, let's start back in... um, well, let's, start, let's just start back in verse 2. These, everybody there, Genesis 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. He's a little smart aleck. Now, Israel, Israel, remember who Israel is. Last week, we ended with Jacob's name being changed to Israel, because Israel means strives or fights with God. And he fought and wrestled with the angel of the Lord, and we, were, we debated whether that was Jesus or an angel. I tend to think it was a, a pre-incarnate Jesus. But Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Just a casual reading there at first glance. How many times does it say his brothers what? Hated him. His brothers were jealous of him. So the robe. His father gives him the coat of many colors. The robe, really, we don't know what the colors were, but it was a symbol of royalty. It was almost as if Jacob was uh, crowning Joseph as his crowning son. Um, The significance of the two dreams. Why do you think there needed to be two dreams? Okay, you could forget one. Confirmation. Confirmation. You'll find out as we go through the Old Testament, there has to be what? At least two or three witnesses. And so a lot of times when dreams come, they come in pairs so that um, it can be confirmed. Now, what's our first impression of Joseph? I kind of wrote up there what? 
He's a tattletelling little upstart who's a daddy's boy and proud of it. How will God use, I don't know if I finished this sentence there, how will God use this little guy? So he's a tattletale. He comes in as a 17-year-old kid and says, hey, I've had these two dreams. You guys are all going to bow down to me. And they're like, what in the world are you talking about, bow down to you? You're the youngest of these, uh, you young little upstart. Now, let's go to 37, um, verse 12, and, we'll, and you guys are very familiar with the story, but I, I think it's important that we spend just a little bit of time here in the Joseph narrative. So let's go keep reading verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They've gone away. For I heard them say, Let us go down to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Now, let's just stop right there. Haven't we seen this before, the killing of a brother, Cain and Abel? Now there's how many brothers? (laughs) Eleven brothers conspiring against the 17-year-old boy. So they're conspiring to kill him. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. But when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone! And I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped it in the robe and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, 3720. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Sounds very similar to chapter 4, verse 8. We looked at that where Cain conspired to kill his brother Abel. We, we've seen this whole issue of sibling rivalry all the way through Genesis. Last week, what? Esau was wanting to kill Jacob. Cain killed Abel. Now the brothers are wanting to kill Joseph. Let's just review for a moment because what's the question we've been asking all this time? What's the fate of the 
seed of the woman. Is, is this Genesis 3.15 prophecy that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, is that going to be fulfilled? Because it seems like all these brothers are trying to kill each other and stop this thing from happening. Okay. A cistern. What's a cistern? It's probably shaped like a bottle, and they could be as much as 20 feet deep. We don't really know how deep it was, but it's like a little dungeon that they, they dropped Joseph into and left him for dead down in the cistern. Okay? Reuben. Who's Reuben? Do you guys remember Reuben? He's numero uno son, right? What, what should we think about the firstborn son? Normally, what, in stories growing up, the firstborn son is usually supposed to be what? Supposed to be responsible, brave. Okay, Reuben emerges as an incompetent, foolish firstborn who can't lead. Okay, we have to go back to chapter 35. He had incest. Okay, that's not a good leader. Um, in verse 37, 21, he's basically saying, well, he really can't make a decision. So he says, well, you know, let's just at least just drop him in the pit and leave, and leave him for dead, you know. So, so there's something foreshadowing here about Reuben, the firstborn, in the blessing. Remember, who's to get the blessing usually? The firstborn son. Do we see the firstborn son living up to being able to get that blessing? No. Okay, so there's a little bit of a, of a foreshadowing there about Reuben. Okay, in verse 23, Joseph is what? It says he's stripped of his robe. That's kind of a play on words, right? He's de throned, if you will. Because what did the robe represent? Royalty. And they come and they're like, you're gonna, you're not, we're not going to bow down to you. We're actually going to take your robe off and strip you of your robe. We're going <laughs> to dethrone you from your father's position of royalty. Now, here's an interesting foreshadowing. Look at verse 25. Joseph's where? Left for dead in a pit. They just conspired to kill him. And what are they doing? They sat down to eat. Now, why in the world would Moses, the narrator, put that little bit of information in there? They sat down to eat. What's the significance of that? Yeah. Yeah, Joseph's in the pit. It shows, I think I wrote up there, what callous indifference of the brothers. Okay. Joseph's in a pit. They're eating a meal. Keep that in mind because when we get later on in the story, there's the significance of a meal, another meal that's being, that's being um, partaken of. But these guys are just kind of, you know, let's go over there and have a subway. Let's have a sandwich while our brother's dying there. We don't care. We're hungry. We're just going to go eat. D do you think about their conscience? It was probably, you know, what do you think? You know you've done something wrong and they're all eating. Do you think they talked about what they were doing? They probably were trying to divert the situation and, and try to assuage their conscience. Now, Judah begins to emerge as the leader of his brothers. He's the fourthborn. What do we know about Judah, just from history? The tribe of Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah. Jesus comes from Judah. So even right here, Judah, the fourthborn, so it's not in order here. The fourthborn, Judah, becomes the leader of his brothers. Yeah, he does. He does have the situation tomorrow. So he's not, remember, these people aren't perfect. So, um, yeah, they're not superheroes. Now, Reuben as the firstborn should have persuade, persuaded his brothers to do the right thing. Um, when he comes back and finds out that Joseph's in the cistern, as the firstborn, what should he have done? This is not right. 
this is not good. Brothers, you are all wrong. I'm the oldest. We're taking, we're taking, the, the game's gone on long enough. You, you, you've, you've had your meal. You've had your fun. Let's take him out and bring it back to dad, okay? But does Reuben do that? He's a coward. For some reason, he doesn't stand up to his other brothers. He, he's showing some incompetent leadership as the firstborn. Okay. Now, chapter 39, I'm not going to go through the whole chapter 39, but the story is, I'll, I'll just paraphrase it because hopefully you guys have read Genesis. It's the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Now, you remember the story, right? Joseph was handsome. He was well-built. He was put in charge of all Potiphar's affairs. Potiphar was probably an um, army captain. And um, she comes and she, day after day, she keeps enticing him, come to bed with me, come to bed with me. He's like, how can I do such a thing? And finally, uh, she sends all the servants out. He's alone in the house and she traps him and, and tries to seduce him. And he runs out and then she basically frames him for rape. And basically, he, he gets a bad rap for doing something right. But interesting terminology. Look at chapter 39. We're going to skip 38. Here's something interesting about 38 and 39. I don't have time to go into this, but 38 is all about Judah raping Tamar. Chapter 39 is all about Joseph running away from Potiphar's wife. Two very sexually charged chapters side by side showing one son doing the right thing, showing the other son doing the wrong thing. And the author, Moses, puts those side by side to juxtapose the difference between Joseph's character and Judah's character. But let's look at chapter 39, verse 1. We won't read all. It'll take us forever to read all these, so I'm going to kind of paraphrase. Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Now, look at verse 2. The Lord was what? What does, your, what does your text say there? The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man as he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. There's a major theme in Joseph's life where repeated over and over again. It says the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord gave him success. This is going to play a lot because when you look at the life of Joseph, he spends a lot of time in isolation and a lot of time in suffering. Okay, he's left in isolation in this cistern. His brothers throw him in there. He's alone, all by himself, but God was with him. Later on, we find out that he spends all these years in a prison, all by himself, but God was with him. So Joseph is a man that suffered for doing the right thing. He's a man that suffered. Now, in verse 7, well, let's just look um, at verse 6. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. I think the NIV says like well-built and handsome, but it's kind of a modern day. It's well-built. I don't know if that means he had like washboard abs, and, and I don't know if he looked like the front of a fitness magazine, but he was a handsome dude. Okay, but verse 7, after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, my translation says lie with me. Does some of your translations say go to bed with me? Okay, we really can't make this, a, if we want to make like a rated R version of the Bible, we'd probably translate it literally, but since kids read this, they've translated it pretty safely for the way the original Hebrew is translated. It's a very crude expression and sexual come on that Potiphar's wife gives to um, Joseph. 
So she's very crude. She's very um, forthcoming. She, she wants to basically, you know, you guys can read the line. But look, look read between the lines. Look at verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's, no greater, he's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now talk about resisting temptation. Think about all the opportunities Joseph could have had to give in. She's a powerful woman. She could have sent everybody out day after day, and they could have had this major affair going. But what does he say there? How can I do such a thing in what? Sin against God. So he's a moral man. He's a man of integrity. He's a man that's resolute. We see the excellence of Joseph in his moral fortitude, his ability to withstand temptation. Now, you know the rest of the story. She accuses him of rape. She goes back and tells her husband. She embellishes the story to try to make it look worse than it was. He gets mad and decides to, what, throw him in jail because he's been embarrassed. But look at verse 21. We see this theme again. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him... and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Now, you guys know this word. We've looked at this the past four or five years. I'm hearing you say it. What is it? Chesed. Chesed. Or if you want to say it really good Hebrew, chesed. Get the little H. It's the Hebrew word. This is probably one of the most important words in the Old Testament. And we will see it over and over again. It's translated loving kindness, steadfast love, kindness. Let me give you a definition of what chesed means. Okay, it's God's unconditional, I'll just write some words up here, tenacious, loyal, covenant, committed love that he has for his people. God has bound himself to his people in hesed. Okay, it's just a really strong Hebrew word that means God's powerful, unconditional, tenacious, loyal covenant, pursuing love for his people. And what does God show Joseph in the midst of all this? Has said. Okay, think about, yes. Is has said only used for God and his people? Or can, I mean, can people have has said for their children? It's only for God. Yeah, people can't have. You rarely see the word hesed being used person to person. It's almost always used of God's love for people. Now, like when you get to the New Testament, the word agape is a little bit looser because you can have agape love for one another and God has agape love for us. But in the Old Testament, it's really, it's really like the best way to say it is covenant love, that God, the love that God shows to his people. There's different words in the Bible for love, like loving each other, but has said's almost almost always used for God. Does that, does that answer? Yeah, Good, that's a great question. Yeah, he's think about this man. He's been in prison, or not in prison. Yeah, I mean he's he's been in the cistern. He's been falsely accused, and he needs the loving kindness of God. God was with him. 
And look at verse 22. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. How many times is that repeated? The Lord was with him. The Lord is with him. And he keeps, he goes from what? You're going to see this escalation or this elevation of Joseph, but before he gets elevated, what does he have to go through? Suffering, isolation, pain. Let me ask you a question. Does God often use painful trials and experiences in our lives to, I don't use the word elevate us, but to, to shape us to how he wants us to be? Yes, he does. Just, just a minute, Brent. Is it always where you get to point A to point B and it's just that easy? Okay. Do you sometimes suffer for doing the right thing? Okay. But what's the one thing you can always count on? God was with him. Okay. Brent, what, what was your just question? Say, um, C.S. Lewis said two things. One, he said, pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. And the other one he said was that he screams in our pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me repeat that for those that are listening online. Um, pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. That's C.S. Lewis. That's a, that's a good quote. And we'll see this in the life of Joseph, okay? So, verse 23, he's alone. He's left for dead in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Twice he has suffered unjustly. Okay, we get to chapter 40, and I'm not going to go through all of chapter 40, but he's in prison, and the significance of chapter 40 is two of the closest people to Pharaoh have been put in prison along with Joseph for being accused of treason. Okay, you've got the cupbearer. Ancient kings would have a a, a cupbearer in case they were poisoned. So they would have somebody drink their wine for them, and if the guy croaked... You know, talk about uh, like a really scary job. It'd be like a secret service agent. I'm going to take a bullet for the, you know, for, for, the, for the Pharaoh here. And so you, know, you give the guy the drink. Well, if you were that close to Pharaoh, what could you do if you wanted to have assassination plot? You could spike the wine and fake it, and, and you, that would probably be an easy way to assassinate Pharaoh. So he's being charged with assassinating. Okay, the baker... The baker, the candlestick maker, and the what's the other? The butcher, the baker. No, it's just the the cupbearer. The baker, he was close to Pharaoh as well. He could have done what? He could have poisoned the cupcakes, or he could have poisoned the ra- you know the raisin stuff. So both these guys are in the raisin brand or whatever. Yeah, both both these guys are in are in prison along with Joseph, and both of these guys have dreams. Okay, and the the cupbearer has a dream, and basically what the dream reveals is that he's innocent. The baker has a dream, and what it reveals is that he's guilty, that he's going to be, you know, beheaded. And so what happens was, um, in verse 14, let's just look at verse 14 of chapter 40. Joseph basically um, interprets the dreams. There's a lot of dream metaphors with Joseph because he had the two dreams. There's two dreams here. He interprets the dreams. And then Pharaoh's going to have a dream, and he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. And so that's why he's called the dreamer, um, just kind of his nickname. But look in verse 14. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Okay, so what does, he, what does he appeal to the cupbearer? When you get set free, when you get exonerated, when you get declared not guilty, remember that 
tell, go back and give a good word to Pharaoh that I'm suffering unjustly here. Go back and tell him to, to think about Joseph. Remember me, okay? So that's his plea. And verse 16, we find out that um, the baker is going to get assassinated or is going to get killed for his assassination plot. But look at verse 23. It all comes true. The cupbearer is proved innocent. He gets released. The baker is hanged by the chief. Uh, it's, it's hanged. But look at verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And look at chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years. So how long does Joseph have to stay in prison? Two more years. Suffering unjustly for something that he didn't do. And the cupbearer never went to Pharaoh and said, Hey, remember this guy Joseph? Uh, he's suffering unjustly. He didn't do anything wrong. You need to get him out too. So suffering. Question again. How will isolation and suffering be used by a sovereign God to shape this man? How will Jacob or Joseph's time of suffering be used to elevate him to be a great leader? Because eventually he's going to become the prime minister of Egypt, the second in charge. And so God, again, uses those times of suffering to shape leaders, to shape us to be what He wants us to be. Most people that are good leaders have been through times of suffering. Would you agree with that? Chapter 41. Joseph is in prison for two more years. The cupbearer conveniently, what? Forgot about him, okay? Now, I'm not going to go through all of chapter 41, but basically what we find out is that Pharaoh has a dream. And in the dream, we find out there's going to be seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. So let's just read the, let's just read the, the, the few verses we've got here. Chapter 41, verse 29. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. Okay, so seven years of good crops, seven years of famine. So Joseph, being a smart, wise man, God was with him, has what? He has a plan. And he says, Pharaoh, I've got a plan. If this is what's going to happen, let's do three things. Number one, let's appoint, let's appoint a prime minister. Subtle, how about me? <laughs> we kind of, you kind of read the little lines, it's like, why don't you appoint somebody in charge of all this? Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. You know, it probably could be me. And um, number two, appoint local governors. And number three, institute a national rationing system, okay? So for these seven years that things are plentiful, we need somebody in charge of the whole country, we need local governors to administrate it, and we need to start saving things up. We need, we need to create a ration system, a storehouse, if you will. So when this famine comes, we have reserves. And so that seemed like a good idea to Pharaoh. And so finally we get to Joseph's exaltation. So let's look at the very end of chapter 41, verse 40 and 41. You, this is Pharaoh speaking to, to Joseph. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. So here we have the kid, the 17-year-old upstart, the tattletale kid, gets thrown in a cistern, sold for slavery, unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife, 
two years in prison. Now what's he finally? Number two in command in the whole nation next to Pharaoh. And who did that? I mean, we don't, we, we don't have to read between the lines. What does it keep saying? God was with him. God sovereignly orchestrated these events to bring about the exaltation of Joseph, but not through trials, not through tribulations, not through isolation. Chapter 42. Okay, here's where the famine comes, okay? There's the seven years of famine. It's really, really bad. Where are his brothers? His brothers are back up in the land of Canaan, and they know that the, the, the rationing and all the supplies are down in Egypt, so what do they do? The brothers come back to Egypt to get stuff to take back home. And what we find is, is that Joseph kind of plays a game with them. And if you read this, you probably thought, now why in the world is Joseph playing these games? Because at first it seems like he's kind of being mean. He's kind of being deceptive. And so the question we have to ask is, is he betraying, his, is he, is he betraying this man of integrity we've seen all along? Or what, what's he doing here? What's he doing? I think he's testing his brothers, okay, to see if they've repented, to see if they've changed, to see if there's any change, any remorse, okay? We know Joseph's character because of the many times it mentions him weeping. Okay, three times in this, in this story when Joseph comes face to face with his brothers, they don't know who he is yet. Now, why don't they know who he is? Do you, do you kind of know why? What did they do to Joseph? When was the last time they saw him? A 17-year-old Hebrew boy. What is he now? Does he look like a Hebrew? No, they shaved his head. They put the Egyptian garment on him, and he probably speaks Egyptian. And we find out he does speak Egyptian because there's interpreters there. So they're not going to recognize who he is because he looks totally different. And so they come and they ask for food, and, um, but he weeps. Look at verse 24 of chapter 42. Let's start and actually start in verse 23. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Joseph, there's, there's times where Joseph just can't contain himself. He weeps. So we know that Joseph's not being mean because he's weeping towards his brothers, but he's doing this test. Okay? So here, here's what happens. Joseph says, okay, I'm going to put your brother Simeon in prison. Okay, so Simeon's in prison. Who is the youngest son? Benjamin. Now, remember how much of a daddy's boy Joseph was? Okay, what does Jacob think? Joseph, my, my little pride and joy, he's gone. So who am I going to dote on now? Benjamin. And Joseph knows that, so he goes to his brothers and says, Go back to your dad, and if you have another son, a youngest son, bring him back too. And they're probably thinking... Ooh, this is not going to sit well with dad because what could happen to, other, to our other son? What did we do to his other son? And they put the secret money in the sack. You remember that? They put the money in the sack. And then Reuben emerges as foolish. Okay, let's see how Reuben emerges as foolish again. Let's look at verse 37. Um, then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and, he's only, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. 
Now, this is the beginning of these rash vows that we see by some characters in the Old Testament. Like when we get to Judges, there's these rash vows. What does Reuben say? Well, kill my two sons if, I, if we don't bring Benjamin back. What's he doing there? Is that smart? Is that wise? Is that a good bargaining chip? He basically puts his two children on the line. He's already committed incest. He's the firstborn son. He should have basically um, persuaded his brothers, and now he's emerging as, as foolish again. There's a foil here. Do you guys know what a foil is? What's a foil? It's not like a piece of aluminum foil that you put over. It's a literary term. A foil means you usually have two characters side by side in a story, and they're night and day opposite, and they pit against each other to, to, to show the dichotomy. Does that make sense? So Reuben is a foil to, to Judah, as we'll see as the story emerges. Because Reuben's the firstborn. He should be the one that's doing the right things. But Judah's the fourthborn. And we see Judah emerges as the one that's the leader as opposed to Reuben. So a lot of these stories are pit back and forth against each other to show you the, the, the stark contrast between um, Judah and Reuben. Okay, chapter 43. This is where Judah emerges as noble. They come back to Egypt... They bring Benjamin. Yes? Is there, there's no way to know what kind of time frame. Because when I was reading this this year, I just said, the famine's severe in the land, and they're leaving their brother back in Egypt. <coughs> and they said they ate all the grain. I mean, to me, it, Well, as we find out later on, I think, there, I think it's a 20, I think the whole thing takes, it's 17 plus 2 is what? 19. <coughs> And then I think there's another 20 years, so I think he's like, by the time that the story ends, I think he's like 39. But I have to go back and check my math on that. But I think, there, if I remember correctly, there's like a 20-year, some of those verses it says there's 20 years. But, but, but what I'm saying is, in the beginning in 43, it says the famine was still severe in the land. They'd eaten all the grain they brought from Egypt, but they still have one, one of the kids back. Right, Benjamin. Right? Yeah, Simeon's still in prison. So he's still in prison. And right. Yeah, and, well, and I probably have to go back and commentary and see how long the distance was between um, the land of Canaan to Egypt, travel-wise. Um, and I probably have to go back and look in a commentary or study Bible. That I don't remember off the top of my head, but it, yeah. Okay, let's look at um, chapter nine. I mean, chapter forty-three, verses nine and ten. Actually, let's start back in verse eight. Judah said to Israel, his father, "Send the boy with me." And we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have not returned twice. What's Judah doing here? He is basically almost in a position of substitutionary putting his place. He's saying, basically, if Benjamin doesn't come back, you can take my life. Now, what did, what did Reuben say? You can kill my two sons. <laughs> Judah says, you can take my life because I'm going to be the noble one and step up and, 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 and die in the place of somebody else. Now, what does that foreshadow? Lion, tribe of Judah, substitution. We kind of see foreshadowings here of what's going to happen with this tribe of Judah. Okay? Now, Joseph weeps. This is the second time. He weeps because he sees his younger brother, Benjamin. Verse 30. 
Where is it here? Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brothers, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. He couldn't weep in front of them because he's a dignified prime minister. They don't know who he is, so he can't control himself. So he goes into an antechamber and begins to break down and cry. Okay, so we see the passion here of Joseph for his brothers, and he, he, he's got to wait for the right moment to, conceal, to, 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 to bring it all to light, okay, because he's still testing them. Now, in verse 31, what do we have? Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for this is an abomination to the Egyptians. What are they doing here? They are having a, a meal. Now, what's the irony? Joseph, in a position of power, serves a meal to his brothers, while just 20 years earlier, his brothers left him for dead, powerless in a cistern while they callously ate a meal. Okay? There's some irony going on there. Why give Benjamin five times more food? We're going to give little brother more. What are they testing? Jealous, jealous again. That's an old song. Will they respond the same way when their youngest brother gets preferential treatment? What was their problem in the very beginning? Daddy loved Joseph more, so we're going to kill him. So Joseph says, okay, I'm going to set up another scenario. I want to see if these brothers have learned their lesson, so I'm going to give preferential treatment to Benjamin the youngest to see how they respond this time. Are they going to go out and try to kill him? Are they going to be jealous again? Or are these, have they repented? Have they truly come to their senses? He's testing them. Okay? Chapter 44, it's the setup, okay? He, put, he makes this whole, this is a very interesting story with a lot of like drama. It's got a lot of plot twists and drama. What's going to happen? It's the setup. He puts the silver cups in. Whose sack when he sends him back? Benjamin's. Now, is that just because that's what he decided to do? No, it's, it was a setup. He's the youngest son. What, remember the whole issue? If Benjamin doesn't come back, dad's going to be really, really mad, really, really sad. Reuben says, well, we'll just kill my two brothers. Judah says, no, my life's on the line. So Joseph probably doesn't know this whole story, but he's testing them. Okay, if Benjamin is caught... He will either die or have to be a slave. He would have to come before Joseph and say, okay, you've stolen from the king, you die or you become a slave. How would Jacob take this news? Would they abandon their younger brother this time like Joseph or would they come to his defense? So here's this test again on their youngest brother, chapter 44. Now, Judah has a humble, earnest, noble plea to Joseph. Now listen to how Judah emerges as noble, okay? Let's look at chapter 44, verses 33 and 34. He's coming before Joseph. He knows Benjamin's been caught. What does he do? Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What does Judah say? Take me instead of Benjamin. I will take the crime. I will pay the fine. I will be a slave if you need to kill me. So what did he promise his dad earlier? 
I would take the place. So here again, we have this whole issue of, this is the first instance of human substitution in the scriptures. Human substitution. Okay? And I wrote here, unconditional loves make some crazy sacrifices. Who did Judah love? He loved his dad. He loved his dad so much that he was willing to do something crazy like give up his own life because he had so much love for his dad. Sounds kind of like Jesus, right? He loved his father and gave up his life for his people, which when you think about it, it's a crazy sacrifice because we're sinners that don't deserve God's love. Judah shows empathy toward his father. Judah emerges as is. Now, this is a key thing here. Judah emerges as Israel's ideal of true kingship. It's a foreshadowing. Are there kings yet? No. We'll get to that way on down the road. But there's these traces and these foreshadowings of what an ideal king is going to look like. And we need to start thinking about that now, even in Genesis. What is the ideal king of Israel looking like? Because when Saul comes on the scene, he's not the ideal king. It's David is. And then Israel blows up because of all the kings. And so this whole issue of kingship is important. And so... This kind of foreshadowing here, Judah emerges as this noble, sacrificial, substitutionary leader. Okay, chapter 45, God's sovereignty in the crucible of suffering. Let's read chapter 45, verses. Uh, let's just start with verse 4. Chapter 45, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers... Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. Is there any mistake who did this? Okay, Joseph finally pulls the cover back and says, Okay, it's me, your brother. And they're probably shocked. Does he blame them for what happened? Okay. Let's talk theologically here. Who's responsible for Joseph being sold into slavery? Trick question. God. Was it an evil act? Okay. Okay, we'll get there. But just in, on face value, was it an evil act to sell his brothers into slavery? Yes. Are they responsible for that? Is God ever responsible for evil? Can God be charged with evil? Okay. Can God use evil? Yes. Are humans going to be held responsible for the evil they do? Yes. Okay. In Joseph's mind here, though, he's got the highest view of God's sovereignty because he's saying, you guys think that you're the ones that were doing this, but what has he said all along? God got me there. God has done this. God has orchestrated it. It's the invisible hand of God's grace moving and orchestrating and ordaining all these things to happen. And go tell your dad that it was God that brought me here. Now, if you're a brother, what are you thinking? I feel real guilty now because I know it was me 
And this cat over here is saying it's God. He's grown so much. Has the crucible of suffering shaped Joseph's view of the sovereignty of God? Yeah, he sees it as God. Now let's look at 42.25. Go back to 42.25. We'll just backtrack because he says this again. Wait a minute. I'm going to make sure that's the right thing. That's probably a misprint. So scratch that. I probably put the wrong. What's 43.23 say? I don't know why I put those on there. Well, let's just skip that. <laughs> Joseph, in chapter 45, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Now, he sends everybody out. He sends all the servants out. Why? This interchange between brothers is only reserved for families. There's no outsiders involved. Okay, so he sends everybody out, and he reveals himself to his brothers right there. Now, Joseph weeps a third time. Third time he's weeping. He, this time he almost can't control himself because he's gotten to the point where I've got to, to, to reveal to my brothers who I am. And then finally, in verse um, 15, And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after, his brothers and after that, his brothers talked with him. That's the final moment of what? Reconciliation in the family. All these years of jealousy, of bitterness, of murder plots, of lying, of cover-up. And who's the one that initiates the reconciliation? Joseph. Joseph forgives them. Joseph weeps for them. Joseph basically understands that it's been God's sovereignty all along that's brought him to this point. Now, Judah emerges again as the kingly figure. Bruce Waltke, in one of the, the commentaries that I'm using for this, said this. I think it's a good quote. Jacob will crown Judah with kingship because he demonstrates that he has become fit to rule according to God's ideal of kingship, that the king serves the people, not vice versa. Judah is transformed from one who sells his brother as a slave to one who is willing to be the slave for his brother. Okay, so that's this whole idea of, of, of this kingly figure, Judah. Okay, chapter 46. In chapter 46, um, the whole family comes down, Jacob and everybody this time, and you have the Abrahamic covenant reiterated. Now, what was the Abrahamic covenant? We've looked at that in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will, you will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Well, let's look at chapter 46, verse 3. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall be close to your eyes, or will, 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 shall close your eyes. Where's God going to make them a great nation? Is it in the land of promise? He says, I'm going to make you a great nation down in Egypt. Okay, this is a setup for Exodus, okay? So the end of Genesis flows right into the beginning of Exodus. And so God, and remember the, the Abrahamic uh, vision we saw a few weeks ago where he was in a sleep and, and God prophesied for 400 years, um, your, your descendants are going to be in slavery. 
And so this is all coming true. Now, the significance of the number 70. 70 and all, there's a list of everybody that comes down. And then in verse 27, it says, And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two, and all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So 70 people in the family come down and settle into. So start, how does the Israelite nation start? 70 people coming down and occupying Egypt. And they settle in Goshen, which is important when we get to the ten plagues. It's a part of Egypt. Seventy is a symbolic number of completeness. Okay? Seven times ten. Seven is a perfect number. In Bible, ten is another perfect number. Seven is a perfect number. Ten is a number of completeness. So 70 times ten. It's a symbolic number for the complete number uh, of this nation is going to settle in Goshen in Egypt to start uh, what would happen during the Exodus. Okay. Chapter 49, Judah emerges as the Lion King. And I thought that was Simba, but no, it was, it was Judah. In chapter 49, Jacob blesses his sons. And you can go and read all the different blessings he gives, but I want to just point out two, two of the, the descriptions. Um, if you look at chapter, or chapter 49, verse 8 and 9, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's club, cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. And this is very important, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What is the prophecy Jacob's making on Judah right there? The scepter. What's the scepter? The kingly ruling thing, baton. The kingship will never leave Judah. Judah is going to emerge as the kingly tribe. The king will come from Judah. He will be a lion. Now, when we get to Revelation, what do we find out? Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the king. Benjamin, on the other hand, verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. I just want to give you some foreshadowing right now, and you've got to tuck it away in your mind, and when we get to Joshua and Judges, we'll get back to this. But this is a foreshadowing that we need to be suspicious of Benjamin. When we look at Joshua, what tribe goes against all the other tribes and tries to do civil war? Benjamin. What tribe did Saul come from? Benjamin. Okay, so Benjamin is always going to emerge as this... um, stubborn, rebellious um, tribe that's going to start the, the nucleus or the, the, the process, the seed, if you will, of eventually the divided kingdom all the way back when we get to like First and Second Kings. All right. Now, chapter 50. Let's just read this. Chapter 50. This is the very last chapter of Genesis, verses 15 through 21. Jacob has died. Okay, the patriarch has died. The brothers are still alive. Joseph's still in charge. Okay, now what do you think is going to happen? The brothers are probably scared. What? Joseph's just been nice to us because daddy's still alive. Now that daddy's out of the picture, he may exact revenge upon us. 
He may, we don't know if we can trust our brother. Maybe he's putting on this act all this time and just waiting for the right moment. Well, let's read uh, chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did. So they sent a messenger to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Okay? That's the fourth time he's weak. His brothers also came and fell down before him. Okay, what's that a foreshadowing of? The dream comes true. Behold, we are your servants. They're afraid, right? They're pleading for Joseph's mercy. You know, don't kill us. We'll be your slaves. But notice what Joseph says. Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Okay, God's ultimate sovereignty there in 5020. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Now we need to understand these words here. The word meant in the original Hebrew language, means planned, devised. You, devi you devised this plan for evil. You invented, you um, put together, you plotted this plan for evil. Same exact Hebrew word used for what God does. Notice that it does not say God used their evil for good after they meant it for evil. It says that in the very act of evil, there were two different designs. In the sinful act, they were designing evil. And in the same sinful act, God was designing good. Psalm 105, 16 through 17, When he, God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he, God, had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So who sent the famine? God. Who sent Joseph to Egypt? God. Wasn't this all just a random plot by some jealous brothers? Or was there something going on behind the scenes? So, let's talk about the sovereignty of God. That'll get you excited, right? Is God absolutely sovereign over all things? Okay. I'll give you a quote from R.C. Sproul. You guys have heard it many times. There's no maverick molecule in the universe, meaning that there's no, uni there's no molecule or atom spinning around out there that's just on its own that God doesn't have control over. Okay? So God has absolute control over all things. Now, here's the question. This is the big question. Does God simply allow or permit things to happen? Or does he, in fact, superintend, ordain, plan things to happen? <laughs> does God allow or does he ordain? And my argument is if he allows it, then he actually has to ordain it or it wouldn't happen. Okay, so let's just ask a question. Let's, let's take 9-11 as, as an example. Okay, Twin Towers, 
planes flying into the Twin Towers. Is God powerful enough to stop that from happening? Yes. So it's not a question of God's power. Okay. Is God a loving God? And would he in his love have stopped that from happening if he loved those people in that building? Okay. <laughs> okay. The question is, is that for some reason God did not stop. Let's just we're just using nine eleven example. God did not stop nine eleven from happening, but He could have, right? Okay, but He didn't. So one thing we can say is that some people look at that and say. Everything in the universe is just random. It's fatalism. You, 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 it's just a random universe. Can we say that anything is random in the universe? If God is God, everything has a purpose. We may just not know what that purpose is. Okay? Now, many of you have heard this verse before, so we'll pull it out again. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And I see Rhonda back there, because you've been in a lot of Bible studies where we've done this before. Because you're usually asking those good questions. Deuteronomy 29, 29. This is, I don't want to call it the cop-out verse, but it's, um, it is a good cop-out verse. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So, does God have secrets? Does God have to tell us everything? Is God bound to tell us everything? No. The secret things belong to Him. Now, He does say some things have been revealed to us. So we've got, what, 66 books of the Bible of things that are revealed. But God has chosen not to reveal some things to us. But we, we, we here's the big thing for me. And I wrote that on there. Okay, when you're going through, I think I've done this in other classes before, Okay, so if I'm going through a hard time, is it spiritual warfare? Is it just suffering? Just the trials of life? Or is it discipline? Have you ever thought about that before? When you're going through something, the question is, okay, and we can get so caught up in trying to figure out which one it is. Okay, is this spiritual warfare or is this discipline? Is this... Um, just suffering, and I think the problem is that sometimes it could be a combination of all these things. The most important thing is, is we need to understand that, that God is behind that, okay? Does God allow spiritual warfare to happen? Yes. Look at Job. Now, if we want, when we get to Job, it's kind of freaky because God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job, Satan? Satan doesn't pick out Job. God picks out Job for Satan, Okay. Does God allow or ordain suffering and trials in our lives? Does God discipline us? Okay. So regardless of whether these things are happening to us, we can sit here and wonder why they're happening to us, but we need to understand that God is either ordaining or allowing them, and He's doing it for a purpose. Now, sometimes He may reveal that purpose to us. Other times He may not reveal that purpose. But we do know that Romans 8.28 says what? All things work together for the good of those who love God and have been called according to His purpose. So is that a blanket promise for everybody? That is a promise for believers. All things work together for good. Does that mean that everything works out the way we want it to work out? No. Okay. So good, 
And here's a real hard thing to say. A real hard thing to say. Let's just be real, real um, practical. Let's just be real um, poignant. Is the killing of a three-year-old son and leaving them to die underneath a trailer park, can good come out of that? Okay. Was, it, was, was evil meant of that? Can good be brought out of that? Okay. How? Okay. Yeah, th- th- there's a lot of implications of that. You can look at that situation and say, that's terrible, that's ungodly. Yes, it was. But can God redeem that? What does it mean to redeem something? We'll get to that here in just a moment when we dive into Exodus. But God can, redeem basically means to purchase or to buy. God can take a bad situation and redeem it for his good. Only God can do that. All right, let me ask you a question. What if <laughs> Some people would say, if, if somebody was here tonight and said, well, I don't think God ordains evil, or God doesn't ordain evil things to happen, I would say, okay, let's talk about the cross. Was the cross evil? Okay. Was the cross something that was God's plan? Was the killing of the innocent son of Jesus sinful? Yes, but who killed Jesus? God. Okay, now before you start getting confused, let's, because I see some of the wheels turning on your faces, let's go to Acts real quick. And when we preached through Acts, I didn't spend a lot of time on this back um, last fall when we started Acts, but um, in Acts chapter um, 2 and in Acts chapter 4, we have God's sovereignty over an evil act, but at the same time, human responsibility. So we've got to look at these two things. You've got God's sovereignty and you've got human responsibility. And they, they, they both exist in the Bible. It's called compatibilism. Okay? They're compatible. Okay, so let's look at Acts 2, um, 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who, in this text, who killed Jesus? The Jews. In this text, who killed Jesus? <laughs> what? Gee, this Jesus uh, delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So who ordained the death of Jesus? God. In one verse, you've got God's sovereignty and you've got human responsibility. Can God be charged with ever doing evil? Is God evil? No. He ordained the killing of His Son, which is evil, but who's responsible for that? In this case, he's talking about the Jews, okay? And so let's look at another passage in Acts, another sermon by Peter. Acts 4, 27 
and 28. Acts 4, 27 and 28. Peter says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So who killed Jesus, according to this verse? Let's, let's list them. You got Herod. You got Pilate. You got the Gentiles, which would have been the, the Roman soldiers. And you got the, the Jews who set up the mock trial. But, again, who's behind the death of Jesus? God, because it says this was according to your what? Your predestined plan. So, in evil actions, God can allow or ordain them, but the people that do those evil actions are always held responsible for them. And from that, what's the greatest good that came out of the death of Jesus on the cross? The saving of many lives, okay? So in an atrocious act like the cross, they're responsible, but God ordained it for good. Does that make sense? Okay, that's kind of some deep stuff. Yes, Brent. I think it's amazing in the first month here the way that God, to me, has dealt with sovereignty in stages. I mean, first you have a 50-year-old that passes away, and a lot of us think, well, you know, just kind of in his prime of life and everything else. Then a couple days later, you got a 17-year-old where you say, but God, taking a someone like that and then you jump to a three-year-old and you're saying how in the world can God I really think God's teaching us something mm -hmm. through this in the stages mm -hmm. can I just take us to one other passage of scripture in Luke and then we'll we'll um we'll finish up here in um I gotta make sure I can find it I think it's in Luke yeah, Luke 13. Jesus says something very interesting in Luke 13 that is a reminder for us when, when bad things happen. Okay? We look at tragic events in our community and we, we, we question them. We should. we should. We should weep. We should mourn. We should, we should cry out to God. We should, we should scratch our heads. There's nothing wrong with that. We see Habakkuk doing that. We see Job doing that. We see David doing that. There's nothing wrong with, with, with struggling with God. But listen to what Jesus says in Luke 13, verse 1. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Two national disaster type things happening in Israel. One, Herod killed some Galileans. Number two, a tower fell on some people. And they're probably asking the questions, well, why did that tower fall on those people? Or, or, or those innocent people just got, you know, why did this happen? And what is Jesus saying? Did the people that die, were they any better or any worse than those that are still alive? The issue is it could have very easily happened to you. What's the point? Twice he says, you must likewise repent. 
So when we see things like this in our lives, when we see natural disasters, when we see catastrophes, when we see things that shock us, when we see things that, that make us question, it's, it's to rest in the sovereignty of God, but it's also to, um, to non-believers, I think, it's a wake-up call for them to repent because it could have very easily have been them. And God owes them nothing. Okay? Does, does that make sense? Okay. Let's um, look at the typology. Okay? Typologist means that we see types and shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament. And hopefully you've been seeing these. I've, I've been trying to draw them out as we've been going along here. Joseph is his father's beloved son who's betrayed by those closest to him. Jesus is the father's beloved son who's betrayed by a kiss. Joseph endured loneliness and suffering in prison, although innocent. Jesus came to earth as a servant and a man of sorrows endured the cross, although innocent. Joseph was raised out of prison and suffering to an exalted position of authority. Jesus was raised, should be from the dead, to the most exalted position of authority at God's right hand in heaven. Joseph was God's chosen man to bring about the salvation of many, food from famine. Jesus is God's chosen God-man to bring about the salvation of many, eternal life from wrath. Judah was willing to submit himself as a slave for his brother. Jesus actually substituted himself as a slave on the cross for his friends. Judah was named by his father as the king of Israel. Jesus was named by his father as not only the king of Israel, but the king of kings. You see the typology there? Okay. Do you guys want to start Exodus? We might as well, since we've got about 15 minutes left. You okay? We'll start in Exodus? All right. As I pass out Exodus, because if not, we're just going to be... Are there any questions at all before we go on? I've got to find this. Exodus updated. Yes, yes. One is he was stripped. Yeah. And we know that Jesus was. Right. He was thrown in the pit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's talk about Exodus. Has everybody got it? Okay, let me just give you a word here that you need to know. Um, it's called. Sometimes when you read um, like commentaries or you read Bible studies or you read material, you need to understand what the LXX is, okay? Does anybody know what the LXX is? It's 70. You're right. You're right. It's called the Septuagint, okay? Supposedly 70 scholars came together in the, about probably about 100 to 150 years before the birth of Christ, and they translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. So the LXX or the Septuagint is basically the Greek Old Testament. So sometimes Paul and sometimes the writer of Hebrews will, will quote not from the actual Hebrew text but from the, the Septuagint. So you just need to know that word Septuagint. You'll see it as LXX. It's basically the Greek New Testament. Does that, does that make sense? The word Exodus comes from, Exodus is a Greek word. You guys know what the word X means, right? We get our word exit, exoskeleton. It means to, to out of, to, to come out of or to leave, to depart. 
So Exodus itself means we're going to get out of here. And that's what happens with Exodus. They, they leave Egypt to go to the promised land. Water is a main theme and a metaphor in Exodus. Moses' name means drawn from water. They passed through water in the Red Sea. There was the bitter water at Maha. There was the water that came from the rock. Moses' life is tied with water. Okay, so it's a theme. There's three major portions of Exodus. Part one, Israel is in Egypt. Part two, Israel's wandering in the wilderness. Part three, Israel's at the base of Mount Sinai. Okay, so there's three movements. Egypt, out of Egypt, wilderness, and then finally to the base of Mount Sinai where they get the instructions on the Ten Commandments and the instructions on the tabernacle, and then it ends with them basically getting ready to, to, to leave camp. Three major motifs, okay? This is how I want you to remember this, okay? There's three major motifs, and they correspond to these three parts, okay? You have the hand of the Lord, okay? When the Bible speaks of God's right hand, it's an Old Testament metaphor for deliverance. So the first part of Exodus is about how God with his right hand is going to deliver them out of bondage. It's the hand of the Lord, okay? In the second part of Exodus, there's the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. It's the word of the Lord. So God's hand, God's word, and then finally at the end, it's instructions on the worship, instructions on the tabernacle. It's the, the dwelling place of God. So three major themes in Exodus, the, the hand of God, the word of God, the dwelling of God. Think about those three movements. Moses, his name means to draw out of water. Play on words. This is a light word. Remember we talked about that the first night? Moseh, the noun is similar to the verb masah, to draw out. And so there's this play on words with the name Moses. Let's look at the call narrative, okay? So let's go to Exodus. Well, let's just start in Exodus 1, and we'll see how far we get. I promise you we won't be in, we won't be in the rest of these books as long as we've been in Genesis, but we wanted to lay the foundation, and I just think Genesis is such a crucial book. But let's just start with Exodus. Let's look at verse chapter 1, verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So what's being fulfilled there? You are going to be a great nation down in Egypt. They begin to be strong. They multiply. They're, they're, they're fruitful. God is blessing the Israelites. But then look at verse 8. Very key verse there. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And I'm like, didn't know Joseph? He was the guy that saved you from the famine. He was the, he was the prime minister. How can you not know Joseph? Did you just choose not to know Joseph? Or what's going on there? And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread 
of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. What words repeated three times there? Ruthlessly. Ruthlessly. So the, the scene's changed, right? Is it peaceful? No, they're slaves. The slave labor. But God continues to be with the Israelite people. They're multiplying. They're growing. And then you know the story about the birth of Moses, right? The little basket on the Nile River and all that good stuff. And then we know what happens when Moses grows up, right? He sees an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew. What does he do? Decide to make matters in his own hands. And he goes and he kills him. Somebody sees him because he tried to bury him in the sand and, and brings it up to him. And what does Moses have to do? He has to flee. He has to go to the backside of nowhere. He has to go to Midian, which is really not the backside of nowhere. It's actually Mount Sinai where he ends up going, and then he comes back again. But then in chapter 3, we've got what's called a call narrative. Now, there are, we'll look at probably four call narratives. We'll look at the call narrative of Moses, the call narrative of Samuel, the call narrative of Isaiah, all three of those, when we get there, just think about the call, the call of Moses, the call of Samuel, and the call of Isaiah are very, very similar. They have a lot of the same imagery. Now, when we get the call of Jeremiah, it's different because Jeremiah is called before he's even born. He's called in his mother's womb. But a call narrative means this is Moses' call to ministry when God calls Moses to a particular uh, purpose. So let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now you need to understand something. Horeb, the mountain of God, is also Sinai. Okay, so it's the same mountain. Sometimes it's called Horeb, sometimes it's called Sinai, but it's, it's talking about the same mountain. So where is Moses right now? He's on Mount Sinai, which later on is where he goes up to get the Ten Commandments. So this is there's significance about this mountain because this is where Moses' ministry starts, and this is where there's a significant area in his ministry. All right, I'm going to get a drink of water here real quick. Cause... Okay, and then let's look at verse two. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near me. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to do good, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel have come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent to you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask, what is his name? 
What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay. Literally, the bush was not eaten. (laughs) Okay, I am who I am. This is the first time God reveals the I am name to Moses. So what's God's name? I am. Now, this is interesting. Normally with an I am, you put a direct object or um, what would it be, a predicate after it. Like, I am tall. I am blonde. I am a man. I am Sean. But I can't just go up to somebody and say, I am. You're what? No, I just am. I am. (laughs) Only God can say, I am, dot, dot, dot. There's no qualifier put upon him because he is The divine name, the Lord. Now, this is the first time that you see the word, the Lord. Is it in all caps in your Bible? It should be in all capitalizations. Okay? This is what we call the unspoken name of God, Yahweh. I put it in Hebrew up there so you can see it. The Tetragrammaton is what it's officially called, Yahweh. So, when you see Lord in all caps in your Bible, and you'll see it a lot from here on out, This is the I am name of God, the covenant name of God, the personal name of God, not the generic name. The generic name of God is Elohim. Yahweh is the covenant, hesed, loyal, I'm pledging myself to the nation of Israel. I am that I am name. Okay, Yahweh. And this is what Yahweh means. It comes from the Hebrew word hayah, which means to be. It's a play on word for essence. The Lord who is. He is the Lord. It's never pronounced. Jews to this day will not pronounce the name Yahweh or Jehovah. They would say Adonai in Hebrew or the Lord in English because they felt that the name of God, Yahweh, was too sacred to even be spoken audibly. Okay? What does that tell us about reverence for God's name? that his name is holy. How does Jesus start the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. Set apart is your name. God is the God who is, the I am. Variations of Yahweh. Yeshua. That's simply Joshua. But it means Yah or Yahweh, saves. Now, just a, just a note here. Joshua, what is Joshua in Greek? Anybody know? Jesus. Do you know what Jesus means? You know what Yahshua, the Lord saves. Some people think Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name. It's not. It's a title. Jesus, the Lord, saves. Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. So Jesus Christ means the anointed king who saves, the Lord who saves. You've got hallelujah. Hallel means praise, Yah, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. So when we say hallelujah, praise the Lord, you're saying the same thing. Hallelujah is just the Hebrew way of saying praise the Lord. Zechariah, Yahweh remembers. That's one of the reasons why Zachary's name is Zachary, because he was born close to Memorial Day. Um, God remembers Yahweh. Zechariah, we, we decided to call him Zachary. He's close enough. 
I am. Now, we don't have time to do this, but I'm going to give you an assignment to go home and look at the seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John where he comes and basically says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. That's what got him killed, ultimately. So when Jesus says, I am, what in essence is he doing in the New Testament? He's saying that he is very God of God in flesh. Okay, so that's what we're going to leave tonight is this whole call narrative of God calling Moses. We've got the setup from the Joseph story moving into the Exodus story. The nation is fruitful. Moses is called by God to go tell them that I am is going to deliver you. And so next week we'll come back and find out how this all unfolds. Okay, let me pray for us. And then um, we'll try to get through Exodus next week. And thanks for your patience, guys. I know it's a lot of information and Again, this is more like a college-type class, lecture, not a lot of interaction, but I, I, I just don't know of any other way to do it, or we'd be here all night. So let me just pray for us, and then we'll, we'll go. Father, thank you. Um, thank you for the story of Joseph. I, I love to see the typology of how um, you took a man who uh, was at the lowest of low, suffered alone, despised, and raised him to be the leader. And Jesus, that's exactly what you did. You suffered you were despised, you were rejected, and you died on the cross, humbling yourself even to the point of death, and God raised you and exalted you to the highest place. And you're King of kings and Lord of lords. And for that, Jesus, we praise you. And we thank you that you are the I am, the great I am, that you are the very God of God, that um, there is no other God before you, no other God um, above you. You are the, uh, Father, you, you love us so much with that said type love. Just thank you for the ways that you love us. Pray that you give us a safe week and bring us back all safely on Sunday. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.